We are studying this week's Torah portion, Parshat Vayigash. Uh, and let's say a blessing for studying Torah. Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kitshanu B'mitzvotav V'tzivanu La'asok V'divrei Torah. Amen. I've been, every week, looking at the female characters in the Parsha, and there's basically just one female character who makes an appearance in Vayigash only by name. Just a name. And so I went down that rabbit hole. Who is Serach Bat Asher? We studied it before, but we thought it had been a while, and we could dig into it again, especially since that's the theme we've been pursuing. Uh, and it's amazing what uh, the story that gets told out of this one name that appears in the Parsha. Serach, Serach, Bat, which means daughter of Asher. So I, now in this portion, it's a fabulous, dramatic portion because it's the portion where Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers. But we're not going to focus on that. Uh, uh, we'll focus on that on um, Shabbat morning, probably. But I really have been enjoying this theme. And so, let me show you the reference I'm talking about. So, just so you say, or so, oh, Vayigash starts on page 287. with the dramatic speech by Judah that finally breaks Joseph's heart open and Joseph bursts into tears and reveals himself to his brothers and says, bring your dad down here. We'll take care of everybody during the famine. And so the brothers go back up to let their father know that Joseph is still alive. Uh, take a look, that's on page 290. Verse 25. They went up from Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob, their father. When they told him, Joseph is still alive, and that he held sway over the whole land of Egypt, his heart froze, for he could not believe them. But when they told him all that Joseph had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to convey him, their father Jacob's spirit came alive. Israel said, Rav, enough. Od Yosef Benichai, my son Joseph is still alive. I must go see him before I die. A very dramatic moment. Okay, I'm pointing that out to you because... Um, uh, we're going to come back to it. And uh, then in, um, hold on, I just got to check something. If you look on the next page in verse 8, it says on 291, these are the names of Israel's sons who came to Egypt, Jacob and his sons. And then it's the list of sons and grandchildren that number 70. 
In verse 15, it says, These were Leah's sons whom she bore to Jacob in Padan Aram, along with Dina, his daughter. So Dina does get mentioned. His sons and daughters were 33 persons in all, male and female. That's Leah's sons. And then it describes uh, Zilpah's children, 16 persons. And Rachel's ch- uh, offspring, 14 persons. And then, uh, oh, okay, I think I missed something. Right, you missed you it. Was six, seventeen. Right, right. In verse 17, Asher's, Asher's sons were Imna, Ishva, Yishva, Uvria, and their sister, Serach. Okay. Uh, that's where Serach gets mentioned. So Serach is one of the 70 who go down. Rather remarkable. Um, and Serach gets mentioned one other time in the entire Torah, which becomes the opening for the teachings about Serach. It's in the book of Numbers uh, on page 1078. Uh, so keep your finger where we were, but go all the way to 1078 if you'd like, or just listen. This, in chapter 26, is the census taken um, 40 years later. Well, more than 40 years later. Census taken 40 years after leaving Egypt. And it says, it's naming all the descendants and their clans. If you go back to 1077, it'll be clearer. Descendants of Asher by their clans, of Imna, the clan of the Imnites, of Ishishvi, the clan of the Ishvites, of Bria, the clan of the Briites, and of the descendants of Bria, of Heber, the clan of the Heberites, of Malchiel, the clan of the Malchielites. Then verse 46, take a look. And the name of Asher's daughter was Serach. These are the clans of Asher's descendants, people enrolled, men enrolled, 53,000. Okay, so it's pretty random. Uh-huh. It seems kind of random, doesn't it? But it can't be. It's Torah. <laughs> now we could do a sort of anthropological, or and should scholarly take on this and say Serach must have been a person of import in ancient lore because she merits being mentioned. But we don't have any of the lore, except in the Midrash. The rabbis, who then evoke who Serach might have been, uh, are where the story of Serach gets expanded. So instead of in these previous portions, where we had a female character, who like Tamar, or Rivka, or Rachel and Leah, who are, you get a sense of who they are, in the narrative of the Torah, as opposed to, say, Dina, who we don't get a sense of and we have to figure out, then there's Serach. And so it turns out that there's a gold mine of secondary storytelling 
about Serach that I thought we'd explore today, because I think it's absolutely marvelous. I was going all over the place. So, here, let's pass these around. Um, would you take one and pass it along? Billy, would you take one and pass this around? Rabbis assigned Serach a role in the narrative, a major role, which is really beautiful. And it's not just straightforward, it's, it's a bunch of threads. And so we're just going to follow their imaginations here. The, the issue for them is that Serach appears to be mentioned going down to Egypt and then mentioned again how much longer... So they tell a story about Sarah, that she was the old, the longest lived of the Israelites, the only person to go down to Egypt, endure the entire period of slavery, and then ascend out of Egypt and um, go to the Promised Land. That's Sarah, and so she's over three hundred. Over three hundred. Maybe more. Um, and she, therefore, in the Midrash, in many ways becomes the wisdom keeper of... Because what does it say about the Israelites during their years of slavery in Egypt? Forgot everything. They forgot, they forgot everything. So how were they going to... They forgot about God. They forgot who they were. They were crushed by slavery. They, and, that, and that's what it says in the Torah. And so how were they going to know when redemption came? They didn't remember the promise. Remember, this was a promise. God says to Abraham and then to Jacob, I'm, you're, you're going to go down to Egypt. Your, ancestors, your descendants are going to go down to Egypt, but they will be freed. So the rabbis assign this amazing role of the keeper of the memories of the people to Serach. They invent this, but they give it to this female character. And it's, it's very rich, which is where I'm going to take you, because it's not, it's random in a way, but the way the rabbis work, they have this character who's named hundreds of years apart, and they tell a story about it. It's, it's beautiful. Do you follow what I'm saying? So, first of all, they tell, there's this midrash about Serach as someone who played musical instruments and knew how to, not only knew how to sing, but knew the power of incantation. And so, uh, and going back now, just a couple of pages to um, page 290, 
Oh, you're still in the 1000s. Yeah. yeah. I jumped the gun a little bit. We're not going back to 1000. That was to that was to set the frame of why the rabbis tell tell about Sarah this way. So now go back to that paragraph in verse 25. When they told Jacob their father that Joseph was still alive, his heart froze. What's that mean? He died. He died. He, he, had, he had like a, a coronary. Yeah. yeah. And, but when they kept talking, when they told him everything, his spirit came alive. It's such vivid language, isn't it? Can you imagine Jacob has been in mourning for 20 years? He's never recovered from uh, Joseph's uh, uh, loss of Joseph. And so... Uh, uh, when he hears this news, he <clears throat> he seizes up, and so the rabbis so the rabbis look at this interesting language, and they say uh, the brothers were worried about how to respond to their father. This is the first reading on the top of the, this page that I handed out, the one that's vertical rather than horizontal. Yes. This word here, vayafog, uh, does that mean freeze as in getting cold or freeze no. as in no. getting still? Seized, stopped, gripped, yeah, something okay. like that. Okay. So what, like what just I, skipping a beat? It could be, yeah. yeah. Uh, so what I just want to point out as you go on is that when they're telling Jacob this, his name is Yaakov, and at the end of the paragraph, the last verse, it's, oh, it's and Israel said, enough. Yes. So J- Jacob, and Jacob, as we've discussed in that state of, I don't know, slave to his emotional state, his, um, his ego needs, his, and Yisrael as the aspect of him that gets mustered there. Yeah, I like that a lot. Thank you. Uh, was there anything else, Willie? No? Okay, good. Good. So, the brothers said, here's the Midrash. And it turns out that uh, this is, this, this, these paragraphs are taken from Aviva Zornberg's book that I've uh, referenced before. She spends a long time talking about uh, uh, Thomas Mann's book, Joseph and His Brothers, which is this massive novel that uh, Thomas Mann wrote based, based on... Uh, these chapters in Genesis, but Thomas Mann also studied all the midrashim and commentaries on Joseph and incorporated them into his narrative. So I didn't read that book, but reading about it in Aviva Zornberg is very interesting because she cites Thomas Mann's statements first, and then she shows the original midrash where it came from. So he has Serach in his book, which is really interesting when you think about it. <laughs> I just uh, So here's the original midrash. The brothers said, if we tell him right away, Joseph is alive, perhaps he'll have a stroke. His soul will fly away. What did they do? They said to Sarah, daughter of Asher, tell our father Jacob that Joseph is still alive and that he is in Egypt. So what did she do? She waited till Jacob was standing in prayer and then said in a tone of wonder, Joseph is in Egypt, 
there had been born on his knees Menashe and Ephraim, which in Hebrew is much, it's important to hear the Hebrew. Yosef b'mitzrayim, yuldu lo al birkayim, Menashe v'Ephraim. His heart failed, just like it says, while he was standing in prayer. When he finished his prayer, he saw the wagons, and immediately the spirit of Jacob came back to life. So I'm going to ask you first, because it's not the right answer to this. Why, what are they trying to do in this Midrash? What do you think? is in a special kind of receptive state when he's in prayer. That the mind is in a special kind of reflective, special state when one is in prayer. What is it? Receptive. Receptive state when one is in prayer. Hold on one second, Ellen. That's, that's very important. She waits till he's in prayer. Okay, Ellen? The brothers 20-whatever-two years ago had no problem telling their father that Joseph, Joseph was is dead. dead. And now they've all learned something and they realize, oh my goodness, we love our father. We don't want to shock him mm. with this joyful news. So they figure out a way to get him the news that's more gentle than just breaking it. Right. How, you, how, you break, how do you break news to somebody? Uh, even the best news in the whole world. Um, uh, Pauline? Why was she chosen? Why was she chosen? That's a good question. We have to then Why make up... Why not a brother? Hmm? Why not a brother? Why not a brother? Yeah. Okay, well, uh, first I'll say my, my thinking about that is that, that that's how the Midrash works, that if she was someone that lived so long to go down to Egypt and come back, and that many times throughout Torah and Midrash, it is the deepest spiritual work of women that's that that where they have these gifts of of knowing the emotional and the relationship between the body body mind and spirit and how to bring it to people in cantillation or in chant. The other thing that struck me is that it's interesting that that why why put in Manasha and Ephraim here? Why, why mention that? Well, Manasseh, the, the name was given, Joseph gave his first son that name because it was the name, and I have forgotten. I have Nashani, I have forgotten name. my home, and I'm here in Egypt. And, yeah. and, and the name Ephraim was, and you have given me abundance, you have brought me. So if you look at... In my new land, in yes. In the new land. And there's a parallel there that Jacob state when he thought Joseph was gone, was dead, of constriction, of almost wanting to forget. You know, we want to forget about it. Maybe just think he, that the person is dead or forget that it's not an issue anymore. It's certainly a strict state of constriction. Ephraim is a state of this abundance opening up to gifts. So I think it's beautiful, not only the Hebrew language that rhymes, but because you wouldn't, there are so many kids involved, and grandkids and great kids, why are they mentioning that? Oh, well, maybe that's why. I also, I thought you were gonna say because it lets Jacob know he has grandchildren, but even more than that. Beautiful. Gail? I would go a different way with the names because the 
when he was alive. And in those names is for, on one hand, Joseph is being told great news. And Jacob then, is being told great news? Jacob is being told great news. On the other, there's that, well, he forgot you. Mm-hmm. He forgot you, and he's oh. flourishing in the new land. And that's in there, by implication. Of that's interesting. I wanted, the other thing I wanted, I was thinking when you said um, why this issue of, you know, Jacob's heart, he might die. It, I'm not sure if I remember this correctly, but there's a lot of midrash, I know for sure, that when Sarah hears that mm-hmm. Isaac was almost killed, she mm-hmm. dies. That's right. Yes. But I think there's also a midrash that says he's okay, but it almost happened, and she still dies. That's right. Mm-hmm. So there's something in the rabbinic tradition that even if the oh, news is okay, yeah. Right, which, which uh, uh, Zorn spends a lot of time on that, and she references the title, The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Uh, this, the, how can we bear the fact that anyone can die at any time, and that we don't know what's going on, and that it can all fall apart? How do you do it? And particularly if it's your child. And especially, yes, if it's your child. That's right. That's right. That's right. Good. So... We're not going to answer the question yet, but we may keep be able to build an answer if we look at other midrashim about Sarah. Why was she the one asked to sing? Uh, so uh, let's look at the next one. This is another midrash about Sarah Barasher, but it's from uh, uh, based on Exodus, the next the portion we have in a couple of weeks. The letters were given over to Abraham. The letters are otiot. That's the Hebrew word for letters, otiot. Listen to that, because you'll, you'll hear the pun they're playing here. <coughs> who gave them to Isaac, who gave them to Jacob, who gave them to Joseph, who gave them to his brothers, one of whom, Asher, son of Jacob, gave the secret of redemption over to Sarah, daughter of Asher. I love this. So when Moses and Aaron came to the elders of Israel and performed the signs before their eyes. Otot were the wonders, right? The staff turning into a snake, all those. That's the word otot, because ot, the Hebrew word ot, means both a letter and a sign. That makes sense, right? Because uh, letters are symbols, and so. But otot are signs, otiot are letters. There's a slightly differently pronounced. So when Moses and Aaron came to the elders of Israel and performed the otot, the signs before their eyes, the elders went to their elder. The elders went to their elder, Serach, daughter of Asher. So in this midrash, Serach is still alive. Did you not get the sheet? We have plenty of extras. Uh, they went to their elder, Serach, daughter of Asher, and told her, a man has come who has performed certain signs before our eyes. She told them, Ein mamash bahem. It's in Hebrew. There's nothing real in them. Uh, there's nothing to these signs. But they then said, But he told us these words, Pakod pakadati, which means God will surely take notice of you. And she responded, that is the man who is destined to redeem Israel from Egypt, for that is what I heard from father. In Hebrew, it's Abba, 
That is what I heard from Abba, Daddy. That's what I heard from Daddy Jacob. Peh, peh. That's that letter. As it is said, Pakod Pakarti, I've taken notice of you. Immediately the people believed in God and in Moses, as it is said. And the people believed when they heard that God had taken note, Pakad, of the children of Israel. Okay, so now we have to look at this word Pakad and where it turns up in Torah. The first time we hear about it is when God says to Sarah in, on our Rosh Hashanah reading, Varonai Pakad et Sarah, and God took note of Sarah. That's back in chapter 21. Uh, we won't look at, I won't make you leaf around for that. Uh, as he said, as God had promised, and Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. And then in Samuel, in the story of Hannah, going up to the temple to pray for a child, and Eli, the high priest, finally says to her, um, uh, God will give you offspring. Now go home. And then, ki pakad Adonai Chana, vatahar vatele. And God took note of Chana, and she became pregnant, and she gave birth to Samuel. So we have those mentions of the word pakad. It's used in other ways, but it, it's in, in particular, it's interesting that it's used in these stories of pregnancy and birth. Then, the next time we hear it is in uh, the end of Genesis. And this we should look at. Look at page 316, the very end of chapter 50. 316. Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's grandchildren, the children of Machir, too, Manasseh's son, were born on Joseph's knees. Joseph then said to his kin, I am dying. And now we're in verse 24. Anochi met, velohim pakod yifkod etchem. And God will surely take note of you and bring you up out of this land to the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made Israel's children swear to him, saying, When God surely takes note of you, bring my bones up from this place. And he died age 110 years, and they embalmed him, and he was put into a coffin in Egypt. They embalmed him, yeah. It was Egypt. Yeah. Are there stories about when and where they moved him from Egypt to Israel? Yeah. In fact, let's take a look at it. Um, so now... Yeah, I have a question. Oh, sure. Why does the word always seem to appear twice in two different forms? Oh, good question. In Biblical Hebrew, when it says, Pakod Yifkod, or, um, 
what it happens all the time. Naton titen or whenever they don't have exclamation points and they don't have bold face mm-hmm. or italics, mm-hmm. so they repeat the verb in that form to make it emphatic. So whenever you see the English, surely this will happen. Surely remember or take note. Surely, 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 no, surely give, surely anything. That's that's a sign in the English from from the English. Patoach tiftach, open, open, open your hand. But it gets translated as you surely must open your hand. If they so, were emails, they'd be in bold capital. That's right. That's what I'm saying. It'd be capitalized, bold. That's but the, that's the convention in English for translating that verb form in Hebrew. So when you see surely and a verb. In but in Everett Fox's translation, because he wanted to capture the poetry of the Hebrew, he always just repeats the word and says, take note, take note. And that's how he does it. Does that answer your question? Yes. It's yeah. Interesting. It's very interesting. Yes. What's extra interesting to me about that is they were so concerned, I think, with economy, not writing too much. So this must have been very important. That's right. To take the labor to write the extra letters. I think that's a great point. Since Hebrew is so concerned with economy, both because of the nature of the language and also the, the limited writing space they had, to double a word made it incredibly emphatic. That's right. Thank you. That's a really good point. Mm-hmm. Take note, take note. And God took note, took note. And so Joseph says... Take note, take note, twice in the, his dying words. And then the next time we hear these words is an exodus at the burning bush. Uh, 316, it's on page... Um, it's on page 352. <coughs> Verse 16. This is right after God says, my name is, I am that I am. And then God says to Moses on page 353, verse 16. Go and assemble all the elders of Israel and say to them, yud heh vav life unfolding. The God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me. And said, Pakod Pakadati etchem. I have taken note, taken note. So the end of Genesis and the beginning of um, the redemption story are linked this way. Um, and uh, that, the next time it gets doubled is. Um, and, it, and so G- Moses goes to Egypt and tells the elders that God has pakad, has taken note. That's in the next chapter. But then, one more time, it gets doubled. And that, I'll tell you, that's in chapter 13, which is on page um, 434, if you want to go there. Four thirty-four. 
Now, this is the beginning of a shalach. Now, when the Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines. So God led the people roundabout by way of the wilderness of the Sea of Reeds. And the Israelites went up armed out of the land of Egypt. And Moses took with him the bones of Joseph. Oh, three, four, thirty-four. Verse nineteen. Okay, sorry. It's okay. And Moses took with him the bones of Joseph, who had exacted an oath from the children of Israel. If you look in the Hebrew, it's hashbea hishbia, saying, "Pakod yifkod Elohim etchem." When God takes notice of you. Bring my bones up from here with you. That is the exact wording of um, Joseph's words, um, saying, I'll read it back in chapter 50. So, Joseph's words at the end of Genesis, using twice, are then mirrored in God takes note of the children of Israel and remembers God's promise, and Moses remembers uh, um, the oath Joseph made his family swear to bring his bones up out of there. Yeah? Is it time for Yitzhak? Speak loud. Is it time for Yitzhak's uh, uh, box <clears throat> My teacher, Yitzhak Boxbaum, did a whole book about Sarah to use oh. at Passover Seders because not only did Sarah tell the others, yes, Moshe is the real deal, when it was time to go, she was the only one who knew where the Egyptians had sunk Joseph's coffin in the Nile. And she was able to take Moshe there and say, that's where Joseph is. And Moshe used whatever levitation magic God gave him to lift the coffin out of the Nile so they could take it out. It was, it was, that, that's, Sarah had the merit to live that long for the purpose of bringing her grandfather's bones out. That's right, that's right. Hmm? That's Midrash. Yeah, yeah, the Midrash goes, and, and the reason I'm sharing this, all this with you, oh, see, what did you want to say? I was going to say, the, uh, relate the same story. About that. She knew where the bones were. Right. She knew. She had to be consulted. Yes. So, Sarah has to be consulted in this first midrash, uh, in the second midrash that we told you, she has to be consulted about what is this pakopa? And imagine this very old lady. Pakod, pakadati. That's it, right? She's the only one who remembers. I have this incredible dramatic scene in my head of nobody remembers. Nobody's going to believe Moses until Sarah remembers those words and doesn't even remember the words. Remembers the sound of what Daddy said. It's just, it's just, it's just love. This I don't even know how to describe. It's also, it. as a speech pathologist, I'll tell Talk you. Talk loud. As a speech pathologist, I'll tell you that that's one of the very early sounds that a child will imitate. Uh, you know, and make. Um, it's also what we were talking about last week, uh, the week before when we met. I'm trying to think what it was about, about the opening of the womb and those same sounds of 
You cannot uh -huh. make them. The, it's the absolute closure. It has to be closed with tension, with constriction, or else you don't make the plosive. And so it's the closing, and then for the air to come out, it has to be a wide opening. So even the, the sounds that the Torah is using is kind of reflective of being in this state, whether it's in Egypt, in this state, whether it's hearing about your child dying, and that opening that occurs at the side of the And the Midrash yes. goes that way. Yeah. They relate the P sound to Pua, yeah. the midwife, yes. yeah. as the sound of the, 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 of the sound of childbirth, the sound the woman yeah. makes breathing in childbirth. So somehow, in a completely nonlinear way, in a completely associative way, this is really, this is really but on the would, couch, you know, this is how we associate. Who would ever think the, 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 however the scribes, these stories were written, ever took a course in speech pathology. <laughs> I mean, who, you know, with the phonemic representation of... Right. Who would, how did this come about? Wow. They weren't afraid. The rabbis not only weren't afraid, they, they <coughs> like, many, like many peoples, they were comfortable living in both the um, discursive discussion mind or, and, in the completely associative dream state. Right? This was not a problem for them. It's only a problem for us because of our, our, the prejudicial uh, education we got to denigrate the, uh, the associative aspect of our intelligence. That's why we have Torah class to get past that <laughs> Well, you know, Freud, Freud understood that. Um, and uh, it, we, we've needed, we constantly need to reclaim that. But for the rabbis, no problem. It's all left brain stuff, if you think about it. Oh, the right brain is, well, yeah. yeah, left yeah. brain is the, uh, Artistic. no, that's the right, that's brain. right brain, yeah, it's but right brain stuff. depends which <laughs> side you're looking at, though, <laughs> and if you're in the right brain, you don't care if it's your right side. <laughs> yeah. She's also a singer, and in both of these paragraphs, you know, we have sound coming out of her in these really interesting ways, right. the verse and the first one, and the, you know, right. the, 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 the rhyme and the first one, and this peh, peh. Pakod, pakarati. And Aviva Zornberg points out that pe, the letter pe, means mouth. So there's something about the need and power of giving language to make reality happen. Right? It's, a, it's just a buried memory until it can be brought to language again. And if the children of Israel are a collective memory that has that become completely suppressed, she is the opening of the mouth. And in fact, there's a Hasidic saying that Pesach, <laughs> which is the name of Passover in Hebrew, if you parse it creatively, is Pesach, which means the mouth speaks. So, the, so I forget which Hasidic rabbi it is, goes, goes in a beautiful direction with this, explaining that liberation for... for for one's liberation, one has to be able to verbalize one's story, tell one's truth. There's, the act of verbalizing is part of our liberation, to tell our story. It's so deep that in our, in our wordless, in our nonverbal, in our space where we can't bring it up to consciousness, we're still enslaved.
And it's through the bringing up through consciousness, through language, that we become liberated to be able so to move. So is Oh, yeah, well, go ahead. Isn't it interesting that the... Talk louder, please. That the person who liberated... Talk to everybody. Isn't it interesting that the person who then liberated us couldn't speak? Mm-hmm, was slow of speech. Mm-hmm. Now, and, yes, and then Opoli. Well, the, the, the person of Sarah... Um, so, these, these rabbis gave her this role. Yes. Why her? Why not a him? Why a her? I'm thinking, I think that's an important question. Okay, and I'm thinking that, you know, we, before, before the before, there were there were these um, deities, these these images of women as the childbearer, as the, um, you know, with the big breasts and the right, stomach the the, and the, the, the the full breasts right, and the pregnant right. belly, those totems. That, has, yeah. that image has been found. Amongst many societies, it's and all over a the universal thing. and all over the Near East, so, all over. So I'm thinking that Sirach could could possibly have come from from that understanding, from that. Well, there we are. First, women are the keepers of life, the givers, the bearers, the holders, and the the, the delivers and the keepers of life. I mean, that's what we were talking about last week in terms of. Um, uh, it, in terms of the importance of women driving God's story. God is the God of life, and women are life's bearers and keepers, the midwives. The, so that, uh, yeah, uh, I think that may be one of the reasons why yeah. Sarah gets this role. So she was the daughter of Asher? Asher. And who was Asher the son of? Asher is the son of... of um, uh, no, 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 of Zilpah, who is Leah's uh, handmaid. <coughs> Leia's, Leia's, um, that's the word they use, yeah. yeah. Handmaid. Okay, so, so she was Leia's handmaid. And so Asher, I mean, Asher, Asher means happiness. Uh, it's an important <coughs> name. Uh, but uh, in the hierarchy of the children, he's low on the mm-hmm. totem pole. Gail, you want to, is that what uh, you were going to say? Yeah, I was, I was thinking that, I just looked it up, that's how I know it was Zilpah. Because again and again, either in Torah itself or in Midrash, but often in Torah, the um, it's either the outsider or the one at the bottom of the uh-huh. totem pole, kind of. That's right. Who is the source of something? Maybe right. we were talking about Tamar the other week, you know, and that um, relationship between Tamar and Judah would normally and later is considered an incestuous relationship. And out of it comes the messianic line. That's right. And we have a lot of those things. And with Leah, who's the unfavored wife, we get the tribes of Judah and Levi, which are the two main tribes for a very long time. So I was looking to see, is there something similar here that at least in Midrash they go for for, uh, Sarah because of the, Mm -hmm. who she is. And also, if it is taken from um, an idolatrous part, then she's the dog, she's a child through Zilpah. And I don't know where Zilpah comes from. No, we, none of us know. Maidens come from, mm-hmm. But they could well have been taken from elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Non, does, non, uh, does the name Sarah have a meaning? We don't know what Sarah means. I was looking into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the rabbis don't play on it, but we should. Mm-hmm. I'd be interested to think about it. Uh, yes, Pauline. Yeah, and it's not only 
the, the aspect of the women is really interesting, but as Gail pointed out, to me the aspect of how, how do these, all these tribes that are so different, you talk from an ecumenical point of view, from these different lands, the different faiths come together to form these people Israel. And how is it all okay? Well, some of the main, most important people of the lines of who does what to whom and who holds up are people that come from uh, a lineage that if we were saying, oh, were these people all really Jewish? There was no such thing as Jewish back then. It was a group of different tribes that became, you know, with a central focused belief system mm. and, and a central story that they held on to that, that brought them together, which to me is like, wow. You know? so, so now, why Sarah and what, why a female? Mm -hmm. the, the, the rabbis are fascinated by this word, pakad because it is associated with fertility, with pregnancy and birth. And so they are looking for the connection between God taking note of Sarah, God taking note of Hannah, and God taking note of the children of Israel who are, need to be born, right? right? And have been forgotten and need to be remembered and just like, and, and, and delivered. That's the word, Delivered, right? Good word. Right. They need their. They, that's the word. I didn't ever thought of that before. They need to be delivered from mm. slavery. Uh, so we know that the Mitzrayim, which is Egypt, is also understood, at going all the way back, as being the place of confinement because Mitzrayim means constriction, or straits, S-T-R-A-I-T-S, um, and so the one of the metaphors of the liberation from Egypt is that they are in confinement in utero and they, they have grown to the point where they must get out. How does the baby know it's time to go upside down? You know, what's going on in the body? And then, then the rabbis compare the parting of the Red Sea to the birth canal. Isn't that cool? So wow. He didn't know any of that. And the, the parting of the Red Sea at the birth canal, and then the dancing and celebrating on the side as the actual birth. You have to see the Kohenets do this. The priestly women, there's a group called Kohenet. There's a group of uh, modern Jewish women who are inventing and, as they would say, reclaiming. Yeah, you know, it's, it's yes. well, reclaiming, you know, inventing and reclaiming. I mean, that's what we're doing, too. Uh, I just mean, it's like, we don't know of any ancient Jewish priestesses, but right. they are creating an idea of celebrating the feminine yes. by, by, by excavating all of these stories and, and creating rituals around them, around them like crossing the Red Sea as a birth experience. Uh, beautiful stuff, beautiful stuff. So. Um, oh, I lost my track. Any, it's okay. Any, anyone want to pick up my tr yeah, a track? Uh, the, yeah. Uh, this, the, 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 Talk I to everybody. Pr pronounce it, but uh, uh, the, the sound of... Yeah. Pakod Pakadati. Yeah, that's what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so, um, okay, so 
the yes, so so the it's the uterus. It, the baby has to be delivered. It's a miracle. The 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 uh, the opening gets wide enough, and they can pass through, and they are born into their on the other side. So that is one of the ways that our tradition views. And water and water. Oh, of uh, and of course, all the waters. Why is it Miriam? Why is it Miriam who takes the tambourine with all the women and dances? Uh, and what I was going to say is that, um, oh God, I'm a little tired. The, it's, it's about the birth metaphor. Uh, the, um, oh yes, so in the spiritual reading of the Torah, this is also about the, the, the liberation of each soul into their, into their freedom, you know, from their constriction. And uh, it's always a, to be born again, you know, is another one of these metaphors where from a place of tightness and where you can't fit anymore, uh, you have to burst out of that and come through to, uh, uh, to your larger horizon. Yeah. I don't want to put it down around this, but you're talking so much about delivery and birth, mm -hmm. and I'm seriously having strong memories of my labor pains. That Think was, about well, it. Those were the 12... Um, the 10 plagues. 10 plagues. Those are the 10 Egypt. plagues. That's how... That's, <laughs> no, but that's how the metaphor gets extended. Yeah, the labor pains are... Uh, it's like... I mean, the, the, it wrecks you, right? Right. And yet... There's the, God willing, you know, there's this, the there's this newborn miracle. Right. And then after a while, you say, uh, many women say, oh, let's have another baby. <laughs> and you say, but you said you'd never want to do that again. I did? What? <laughs> I just wanted to say on the spiritual level that when you, if you, you can get away from the physical, the physical level or the story level for a moment that what you said on the spiritual level is not this story is linear because words are linear and stories are linear but spir spiritually this is happening all the time for us at all different levels of going through this thing we call life that we get to a point where we're either so worn down or so constricted or in such a horrible place because of one thing that we think will never end and this miraculous thing of life occurs and we take another breath mm. or something opens up and we're okay and at the same time very often something else so the spiritual journey is one of this happening on many levels all at one time and no wonder we're a mess but how hard it is for us to feel, wow, you know, I really feel spirit so completely spiritually elevated at any one point in time. So now let's circle back to that original Midrash where they approach Serach to somehow reach Jacob in his time to find the way to tell Jacob that Joseph is still alive. And she does it by waiting till he's in prayer and... Um, and then singing to him a rhyme that sort of could filter in 
to a different part of his brain. It's not like saying, guess what? Right. Uh, Joseph's alive. It's, you, he's in prayer, and she, what does she say? I'll read it in Hebrew again. You'll do al-birkayim, menashe v'efrayim. Imagine her saying that over and over again. And Jacob might start becoming aware that this little girl is singing. And say, and what is she singing? And she kind of makes it, she makes it possible for him to integrate this news without completely dying. Without, and, and she approaches him when he's at his reception. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. It's the place of art. Um, it's the pla- but, so Serach, I don't know, I don't have the final words on this, but there's a full person, a full, not person, a full archetypal character that the rabbis draw based on two mentions in, uh, in the Torah that indicate that she seemed to have been alive a long time. So I'll share a little more of the Midrashim as they extend, and then I'll look at something else related to this with you. Um, in return, it says, when Jacob comes to, he blesses Sarah, according to one Midrash, saying, may you live forever and never die. Mm-hmm. Where are, where oh, this is not on the sheet. Okay. I didn't, um, sorry about that. Sorry, go on. Uh, may you live forever and never die. According to this Midrash, Sarah was eventually permitted to enter heaven alive. <laughs> Something achieved only by Elijah and Enoch in uh, another story in, earlier in Genesis. My goodness, she gets so elevated. Uh, I'll, uh, um, so when Moses appears to the elders of Israel, they go to Serach hundreds of years, because she's still alive, to confirm that he was truly the Redeemer. And she recognized him by the code phrase, Pakod Yifkod. Um, and then, um, according to the Midrash, more Midrashim, hold on, I think it was over here. Uh, according to more Midrashim, um, How did she know where Joseph was buried? Um, she saw. She had seen that the Egyptians, now it doesn't say this in the Torah, that the Egyptians had sunk Joseph's coffin in the Nile, according to the Midrash, to bless the waters of the Nile. And um, so she knew with Sarah's help. And then it says um, that. Oh, this is a great story. So I'm just going to share it with you. In, you don't have this with you because it's in the book of Samuel. But there's an episode where Yoav, who is David's commander-in-chief of his army, um, were battering the wall down to get where a guy named Sheva ben Bichri had gone to uh, hide because he was, had uh, been a... Um, he'd fomented a coup against David. And they're battering the wall of this town when it says... Isha chokhmah min ha'ir. A wise woman shouted from the city. Shim'u, shim'u. Listen, listen. Tell Yoav to come over here so I can talk to him. He approached her and the woman asked, Are you Yoav? Yes, he answered. And she said, Well, then listen to what your handmaiden has to say. I'm listening, he replied. And she continued, In olden times, people used to say, 
Let them inquire of Avel, something nobody understands what that means. And that was the end of the matter. I am one of those who seek the welfare of the faithful in Israel, but you seem to seek to bring death upon a mother city in Israel. Why should you destroy the Lord's possession? And you all said, far be it, far be it from me to destroy or to ruin, not at all. But there's this guy named Sheva ben Bichu who's taken um, a refuge in your city and King David, he's rebelled against King David. The woman assured Yoav, his head shall be thrown over the wall to you. And the woman came to all the people with her wise plan. And so they beheaded Sheva and threw his head over the wall of Yoav. And, and she saves the city. So she, she has no name. So the rabbis say, that was Sarah. Because <laughs> of this, she knew from of old. And then it says, this is really interesting. According to another legend, the Talmud says that Rabbi Yochanan was, now this is now, Rabbi Yochanan's like fourth century. This is like way past the Bible, was discussing the parting of the Red Sea and wondered what the walls of water looked like. At that moment, Serach Bar Asher peered into the window of the study hall <laughs> and affirmed, I was there. They were like lighted windows. Isn't that great? So Serach just always, Serach remembers. These are really funny, but also something so deep about this character that carries the memory. She seems almost like a female Elijah or something. Yeah. yeah. They give her a big role in the Midrash. According to another legend, she lived with the tribe of Asher until they were exiled by the Assyrian in 721 BCE. That's the ten lost tribes. They were exiled. And she went into exile with them and died there nearly a thousand years old. And according to Persian lore, her grave is located at a place called Pir Bakran, a small town about 30 kilometers southeast of Isfahan. The site consists of a small synagogue and a huge cemetery, which is probably 2,000 years old. And it's called um, Serach Cemetery by the Jews in Persia. Mm -hmm. hmm. Wow. What? Wow. Is it still there? I don't understand. It sounds like the How cemetery is... There? Really? There's an ancient Jewish synagogue, and the Persian Jewish community has been there since... Sure. Since the at least two thousand five hundred years, probably somewhat longer. Wow. So some so um, this site says some consider her the guardian of Israel's communal memory. Huh. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. What does her name mean? We were talking about that. We don't know. I, I I'll I'll do a little research, but I nothing came up right away. Uh, so. We had to include her now in the women's Haggadah because... Yes. Well, right? that's right. I mean, I should have brought my copy in. Yitzhak Buxbaum, who's a wonderful teacher and writer, was fascinated by these Midrashim and created a Haggadah called Something of Serach. And he tells the whole story through Serach remembering. And the ones that Carol did, we have to put mm -hmm. something in there. Mm -hmm. But that just came out. Yitzhak wrote that about five or seven years ago. Yeah. I, I really like the train of Gail. Let's I, get on Gail's train. Yeah, I, I like that train where you were thinking of the people, the, the women of least agency rising up because 
Serach would have probably the least agency in the clan. That's right. She was actually the daughter of a slave who was given to Leah, who was the least favored wife. So talk about being really low on the totem pole. I'm with you. I'm with you. Once again, if, as it appears, the Bible and Judaism and all of our origin stories always favor the runt and say, you know, remember, there's no one who doesn't have their place in the sun. That's what it says in Pirkei Avot. Don't underestimate anyone is one of the famous sayings in Pirkei Avot. Then we know that these women who don't have status, uh, when we read the story carefully, are central to God's plan. Right? And so bringing Serach in in that way follows an established pattern. And that's one of the points to make about rabbinic midrash. It's not just fanciful. These are folks who are meditating on this. They know it all. And so when they draw connections, they're connections that are linking a point A and point B that already... Bye, Pauline. I'm sorry. I, well, she had to leave early. That are um, already available. In the, in the material, right? They're not just, hey, I'll say this about Sarah. Mm-hmm. It's coming out of, I wouldn't say necessarily a... Think about, this is the metaphor that just came to mind. Think about somebody who has mastered uh, the piano and uh, knows every scale and every chord and every... Then when they start to riff, it's not just sound, right? It's meaningful because they have mastered their, their subject. And that's the way, one of the ways to look at Midrash. That's why the rabbis say, turn it and turn it when they're referring to Torah, for everything is in it. Grow old and gray in it, for there's no greater reward than this. That's what they were doing. And so their Midrashim are riffs on the theme that's already there. And I think, that's an, I think that's an accurate and uh, fair thing to say, which to us, the, un, the relatively uneducated readers uh, or listeners to complicated music, we won't be hearing it until we take our time like this, very kind of small steps to put the pieces together and then start to in, intimate the big picture. It's very cool to me. And are they also riffing on the Midrash? It's not, not just on what's in Torah, but right. are they on... They've already known... For them, the oral Torah, which is considered the Midrash, and the written Torah right. are all completely interconnected. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, Steve? Isn't there something in Proverbs where wisdom is portrayed as a woman? Oh, that's very important. Did you hear that? Okay, in the book of Proverbs, in the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs... Chochmah, wisdom, is personified as God's consort and playmate. And so they needed, they, here is this um, sort of dangling thing in the Torah, Serach, you know, she's mentioned here only twice. So they, they, the rabbis seem to have put on her, made her a vehicle of wisdom. Yes, yes, an archetype, yeah. Thank you. It's almost like she's the archetypal Jewish mother in that she 
may not say all that much, but she kind of knows everything. And also, like, the prototypical oracle you see in the films, mm-hmm. who never dies, but also knows everything. And it seems that maybe, I don't know, based on my studies, that there seems to be a real centrality of women in preserving oral histories, whether that be by their comparative longevity to males, the fact that males in societies that tend to be less literate often go to war and don't come back. And even though a lot of historians are males, we still have this preservation of oral history that goes on through performances, spirit mediumships, other kind of non-written forms that serves as a kind of cultural preservative. So maybe the they all, they all got it from the Torah. No, uh, no chemicals included. That's right. That's right. If you know how to preserve your food, you have to preserve. You know how to preserve the the, the culture and the memories as well and the stories. I really like that. That's great. Cultural preservative. Thanks, Willie. Sure. We should patent it. Patented. <laughs> Gail, you want to add something? Uh, yeah, I, this is just a, it's a question because it keeps coming up for me, but I thought that the word for bones also means essence. Good. So, so linking Sarah. Let me just articulate that for people and then hear your. So, atzmot, atzamot are bones. Uh, Joseph's atzamot. But etzem also means essence in Hebrew. And atzmut is essence. So the same word, vocalize, and you can see why bones and essence would be related words in Hebrew. It's what's left after you're gone, you know. Uh, so, so the reading, the creative reading is, it wasn't Joseph's bones that they had to bring up, it was Joseph's essence. And that, therefore, Sarah is recalling the essence of Joseph's message. Come into the land with the Israelites. That, that, the, the essence of Joseph's message is what he says when he dies. And there's something about that that feels both, um, I'm trying to remember the word, but like the words you just used. Uh, Cultural preservative? Perf- Performative? Performative. Right, and also like an oracle. Or like an oracle. And That's what this. And also a female. Mm-hmm. There's something about bringing essence into the world of, mm-hmm. of being, you know, that feels very much part of this. And how does she birth it? Pakodity. She 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 births the word, rebirths the words, uh, because it's so cool. Um, Joseph says at the end of Genesis when he dies, "I am dying, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up out of this land." Those are his words. So the essence of Joseph is that message of hope. Right and of faith, and bring my atzmot, bring my essence with you, that when you finally leave this place, and everyone, when Moses comes with the words of redemption, they could not hear him. That's what it says, and when he comes back from the burning bush and goes to Egypt, it says, and the children of Israel could not hear Moses, who brings that good news. We're getting out of here. We're going to be rescued. We're going to be, it's going to be okay. And it says, and they could not hear Moses because their spirits had been crushed by harsh labor. So, uh, again, I said this before, but I have this picture of this one crone, this 
this, this elder, yeah, a crone who's, no, that's not it. And through her, remembering Joseph's essence, we're saved. That's the role that, that uh, Sarah has and, and in the story. He, of course, has saved in the Torah, he saves the world. Joseph saves and the world. So he really is someone you want with you. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you want Joseph with you, that's right. So Sarah, as a crone, isn't giving birth anymore. But how about Sarah? I mean, she's 90, so maybe it's all, again, birth is a very um, uh, symbolic as well as physical uh, meaning in the Torah. That newness, that don't tell God that there can't be a new birth. You know, don't tell the universe that you know that it's over. I think that's a way to say it. Yeah. Don't tell the universe that you know it's over. That isn't how it works. You don't know. And so whether, and, and females are given this, uh, as the birthers are, are given this role over and over again. I think, uh, why don't we look at uh, one more midrash. So turn the page over. There's another place in Torah where the word pakad is used in Parshat Pekude, where it says at the end of Exodus, these are the accountings of the building of the tabernacle. And uh, Moses then describes everything that people gave. There was a full accounting of all the gifts that were made. But they're interested in this word pakad again. You find that when Israel were in harsh labor in Egypt, Pharaoh decreed Gazar against them that they should not sleep at home nor have relations with their wives. Now, that's not true. That's, the, that's not what it says in the Torah. That's what the Midrash says. So, said Shimon Berchalafta, what did the daughters of Israel do? The men were out in the field and were forced to sleep there. They would go down to draw water from the river, and God would prepare for them little fish in their buckets. And they would sell some of them and cook some of them and buy wine with the proceeds and go to the field and feed their husbands, as it is said, and all the labor in the field. And when they had eaten and drunk, the women would take their mirrors and look into them with their husbands. And she would say, I'm more beautiful than you. And he would say, I'm more beautiful than you. And as a result, they would once again accustom themselves to desire and they were fruitful and multiplied. And God took note of them immediately. Some of our sages said they bore two children at a time. Others wow. said they bore six at a time. Yet others said 12. Still others said 600,000. On all these numbers from the mirrors, in the merit of those mirrors, which they showed their husbands from the midst to accustom them to desire, from the midst of the harsh labor, they raised up all the hosts. As it is said, all the hosts of God went out of the land of Egypt. And it is said, God brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt in their hosts. Now, what is this with mirrors? You'll see. Let's read one more paragraph. When God told Moses to make the tabernacle, the whole people stood up and offered whatever they had. Silver, gold, copper, etc. Everyone eagerly offered their treasures. The woman said, what have we to offer as a gift for the tabernacle? So they brought their mirrors to Moses. 
When Moses saw those mirrors, he was furious with them. He said to the Israelites, take sticks and break their thighs. What do they need mirrors for? In other words, the mirrors for him were uh, about vanity, right? Moses has no, Moses is the most humble man on earth. It's like, oh man. Uh, then God said to Moses, Moses, these you despise? These are the mirrors that raised up all those hosts in Egypt. Take them and make of them a copper ewer with a copper stand for the priests to wash themselves in and sanctify themselves, as it is said. And he made the ewer of copper and its stand of copper of the mirrors of those who created hosts. Now, this is really complex, but some of us have read it before. The point here is that in the, right in front of the Holy of Holies is a cop, a bronze, remember they didn't have glass mirrors, they had burnished metal mirrors, yeah. is a copper bowl in which the priests would wash and purify themselves before going in to meet God. And in this Midrash, those, because it says in Pekude, the women brought mirrors, and they said, in this Midrash they say, these weren't any ordinary mirrors. These were the mirrors that the women used to evoke desire in their husbands when the life force was being squelched out of them. Moses, those mirrors are holy. This is the rabbi's roundabout way of saying that. Um, and once again, it's the power of, of, of women to know that life shouldn't stop. That is what brings them, makes the Israelites be fruitful and multiply and become such a mass, that event, mass of humanity that they must be born out of that place. They must be delivered from there. So that's the way the feminine, as I understand it, you know, is made holy in these rabbinic texts. Um, and where sexuality in these rabbinic texts, in other rabbinic texts, sexuality is suspect. But in these rabbinic texts, sexuality is holy and crucial to our, our, our uh, path of, uh, to God. God wants it, wants us to be fruitful and multiply. So I love that midrash. Yeah. Yes, Jeff. Just one, one thought about the, uh, you mentioned the etymology of Sirach may not be known. Is there any conjunct with the English word Sirach, which is kind of a celestial being? Sarah. Oh, well, Sirach is actually a Hebrew word. So Seraph, Seraph is one of the celestial beings mentioned in the Bible. Lisroph is to burn or to be fiery. So Seraphim are usually called the fiery angels. Um, and uh, that's an interesting thing to think about. Everybody look up Seraph and see if you can... You come, you're looking on uh, your phone for Seraph or just... No. Okay, then, then you have to stay light. <laughs> okay, but I think that's a good place for us to stop. Anyone have any final uh, thoughts or comments they want to make? I'm just wondering if the custom of, of covering mirrors when someone has died, if that, if that isn't linked in some way to halting desire when you're in mm. mourning, yeah. Yeah, I think so. So uh, the negative take on mirrors is that we use it to only burnish our own vanity, and that it keeps us from seeing the essence. On the other hand, here's a total other view of mirrors that mirrors can actually 
uh, inspire our desire. Yes. So either way, it would be a reason to cover yes. it. Yeah. Yes. I had heard that you cover the mirror so that the spirit of the person can't re-enter mm-hmm. the room. Also, yes. there one of the other stories about mirrors. You know how vampires can't see their reflection in mirrors. Yeah. There's old, there's old, old stuff about mirrors being a place. Huh? Well, mirrors. Well, Jewish, Jewish lore about this stuff is totally always coming from the more broader. You know, it's superstitions cut across all the, all the groups. Yeah. So, mirrors are another reason I heard for mirrors is so, so the demons can't get in. You know, so because mirrors through the looking glass, mirrors are, the, are mysterious, and what's going on over there? You know, so yeah, that's true too. From the different reasons that are given. Great, great. Well, thank you. I. I, I knew I'd find something about a woman in this parsha, even though it was just one name. Thank you, it was fascinating. Thanks, thanks. I'm so glad I got to share that with you. Ah, now, Pauline wanted to make sure to announce that uh, Pathways into Jewish Prayer begins next week. Wonderful workshops. And next week also, a Beit Midrash, which is a house of study where if you want to come on Wednesday mornings, some of us will be here, Gail will be here, to just learn with you, explore with you. So those are what those fires are for.